when something happens in our life and we don't have an end to it where we're unsure, we will come up with an ending. This is why conspiracy theories take hold so quickly. This is where the term jumping to conclusions comes from because we create an ending that's usually not right. So when we create an ending, the pleasure center in our brain is rewarded and that our brains don't care if the ending is correct or not. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you learn how to make that lonely ache vanish and get rid of that nonstop inner critic. Learn self-compassion and give yourself grace. How to get back to what makes you laugh from your gut. Light up to see people. Be happy to your core. Remember those days? I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and change agents who give you their message of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. And today we're talking to author, podcaster, and speaker, Andrea Owen. Are you ready to be truly seen and heard? Are you ready to find and fulfill your passion? Are you ready to make some noise? Listen as Andrea joins us today, telling you how to master resilience and get that unshakable confidence. Andrea survived alcohol problems, love addiction, and a really bad breakup. In other words, life, which brought Andrea to her knees as she hit rock bottom. Coming out of that, she did her work. Since then, she's created a popular podcast with millions of downloads, just published her third book, and is here to tell you how you too can have empowering tools for your success and why you don't have to live as a burnt out mom. You can create your life the way you want it. Welcome the best-selling author of Your Kick-Ass Life and new book, Make Some Noise. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Andrea. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me and for reading that lovely bio. That sounds good. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I know your podcast has now been rebranded to make some noise too. So yes, I, it has. I, I do want to put that out there. You must feel great with the new book out. Did you write yeah. that during COVID with, I did. with two little kids and a husband and everything else? I uh, did. I started writing it. Well, I started writing it in 2019, but I officially signed the contract the end of February of 2020. So right when everything started to fall apart. So you've already got this best-selling book. You've got this top mm -hmm. podcast. You have all this stuff going on. Why write another book? I've honestly felt like I couldn't write another book, especially in the women's empowerment space without talking about what I call the elephant in the room. I've, you know, I've written two books previously and they've been just sort of general straight up and down women's empowerment. And I'm obsessed with getting to the root of the problem. And I've honestly got to the point where I feel like the root of the problem or much of the problem is stemmed from the culture that raised us. And so it was something that I had to dig into and point out. So there's a part in the book where you talk about your drug deal. And when that whole thing goes down, that's very vivid. I feel like it encapsulates so much of what had happened to you. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I feel like it captures a lot of your life. Yeah, it it did. And so for context, I was married yes. before I was my husband and I were just about to start our family. We were discussing conceiving our first child. We had it already planned that we would have two or three children. And he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. And so I was devastated. We divorced and I'm skipping over a lot. Yeah, We've been course. together for 13 years. I was absolutely devastated. And so I started dating again and met someone fantastic and I fell in love. And unfortunately, he was very sick with what we thought was terminal cancer. He told me he had cancer. He wasn't sure if he was terminal or not. They had or he had found a medication that he could not get 
get here in the States, but he could get it down in Tijuana, Mexico. So we were going down to Mexico just about every weekend in the summer of 2006. I was living in San Diego at the time. It's where I'm from. And to get his medication. And he had sent me down there one time to get it by myself. And I was scared. And there was one particular night we were down there and all the legitimate pharmacies were closed. And we're walking behind this alleyway and he sees two men standing there and he says, wait right here. And he walks about 30 feet away from me. And he asks these men kind of in a low voice, hey, do you guys know where I can get any oxy? And Obviously, I could not unhear what I had just heard. And I had suspected that he might have a problem abusing prescription painkillers, but I wasn't certain. And my worst fears were shown to me. So the guys point down the street and we walk down and he there's a cab there and he opens the back door to the cab for me to get in. And everything in my body was telling me not to get in the cab. And I said, I don't want to get in. And he holds my face in his hands and he looks down at me and he says, I would never put you in danger. I would never jeopardize your safety. And I got in the car. And I remember the drive to wherever we were going on this drug deal, like some buddy's house down in Mexico. And it can be a very dangerous part of Mexico, by the way. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I get here? Like, when did I hand over all of my power and all of my strength and all of myself and believe these lies when my intuition had told me from the first date that something was off with this guy. And by the way, I was paying for these drugs. He had quit his job because he was too sick to work. And the long and short of it is a few months after that, I found out he lied about having cancer. He didn't even have cancer. He was, it was a ruse (laughs) to cover up his drug addiction. So you were supporting him. I was enabling his drug addiction. And at that time, I was not a user. I think that I just got out early in terms of, you know, my addiction to alcohol. People ask me all the time when they find out, like, were you using with him? I said, surprisingly, no. (laughs) And I hadn't even been around addicts. So I didn't understand the depths and the lengths that people with that kind of addiction would go to. I was so shocked by the whole thing. Like, what? But then when I, you know, landed in the 12-step programs, realizing that, yeah, that's, that's a reasonable thing an addict would do. But anyway, that was truly like one of my rock bottom moments when I had a moment of clarity where I had realized what I was doing. And it was sort of like I had removed myself from the situation and was watching and just thinking like, what the is going on. But then I continued the relationship. Like it still took me a few months to get out. That encapsulates a lot of what happened. And how did you end up finally meeting your husband who you talk about? I mean, part Mm -hmm. of your bio says, and in your spare time, you like to make out with your husband, which I love that. that, Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have a good, steady, normal guy. Normal. Who's not an addict. Like sometimes I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) Yeah, I know. My husband drives the speed limit, stays in his lane, uh, you know, like follows all the rules. Like he, (laughs) even when no one else is, he's, and not that he, you know, doesn't have his own. Did you do the work first and then meet him or you guys just met? No. I was a raging love addict, Lauren. Like, no, I was like, let's move in together. (laughs) And I laugh now, but he was was laughing my therapist. He was easy pickings. I take it. It was so so. easy. And like, in a way, he kind of rode up on his white horse and rescued me. And my family was like all for it. They're like, yes, take her. (laughs) She needs saving, which is another conversation for another time. But no, I was still very much love addicted. And it's kind of a funny story because my sister had introduced us 
before I even started dating the fake cancer guy via email, she had met him and kind of vetted him and said, I, you know, I met this guy. He's single. He's really cute. He seems like normal and stable and like owns his own home. And my sister is an orthodontist assistant and he had come in for braces and that's how she met him. And I was like, he's a 33 year old man that has braces. Like, I don't want to meet him. Like, that's what she. Anyway, I'm like, fine, give him my email. And so he and I were emailing, never got a chance to meet because he was traveling a lot for work and I had just started dating the fake cancer guy. So then we didn't talk for months. And then he happened to come into the office where my sister was working and he said, hey, how's your sister, Andrea? I, I never got a chance to go out with her. And everything had just fallen apart. And she said, actually, she's really bad. She might need a friend right now. So he called me and invited me to like go on a hike with him. And I said, yes. And it was kind of nice for the first couple of months because there was no pressure. We were just friends and we talked about life and like what we wanted for ourselves and about personal growth. And I was at such a turning point in my life and he was just easy and wasn't creepy, which was nice. And not um, creepy. No, he wasn't. See how low the bar gets when I didn't somebody even lies about cancer. I didn't know. <laughs> you on drug deals takes you on drug deals and makes you pay for it in a dangerous country you just want someone who's not creepy (laughs) the bar was low no he truly set the standard and then it's a really cute love story he sat me down one day and like professed his love to me and I said okay let's go for it so it wasn't until a couple years into our marriage actually that I got sober from alcohol I had been in 12-step programs for codependence anonymous for love addiction and then coincidentally but you'll know it's kind of not a coincidence, Lauren. Like my drinking started to pick up speed when I wasn't symptomatic in my codependence and my love addiction. I picked up the bottle instead. And so that quickly started to run away from me. And luckily I had enough of the programmed in my mind that I knew what was happening. And I was angry about it for a while. I didn't want to quit drinking. I was like, this is my last thing. And don't take that away from me. And, but I knew my intuition told me I needed to quit. And that was, I just celebrated 10 years. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I know what to do with my marbles now. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. <laughs> no, I saw one of your episodes had mentioned that you had 10 years of sobriety recently. So congratulations. That is Thank so you. great. And then you have this make some noise. I Why be quiet, right? Yeah. So when you talk about building superior stories, because that's how we connect with each other is telling our stories. Mm -hmm. Not cleaned up, not, is that what you mean when you talk about telling superior stories? No, I'm actually talking about the stories that we tell ourselves. Oh, go ahead, talk about that. We can, well, and I'll talk about brain science for just a real hot minute here. We, you know, we connect with stories, as you just said, we are wired for them and our brains also really love to see a beginning, a middle and an end. That's why when we read a book or see a movie that has like an undefined plot, which it doesn't happen very often, you know, producers and directors won't let that happen, but sometimes it does. And we're left confused and like, what just happened? It's because our brain wants a complete story, beginning, middle and end. And when something happens in our life and we don't have an end to it where we're unsure, we will come up with an ending. This is why conspiracy theories take hold so quickly. This is where the term jumping to conclusions comes from because we create an ending that's usually not right. So when we create an ending, the pleasure center in our brain is rewarded and that 
our brains don't care if the ending is correct or not. So this is why we so often come to conclusions about ourselves when, you know, for instance, when I had been through my second very much failed relationship, I made up a story that I was bad at marriage. I was difficult. I was too high maintenance. I was too hard to be married to. I was too outspoken and direct and crazy. I, you know, I believed my ex-husband. And I mean, that's just one example of many that we make up about ourselves, that we make up about other people, that they're mad at us (laughs) and on and on and on. So I talk about how to recognize that when we're doing it, when we're making up those stories and that there's nothing wrong with you. It's just part of the human experience and how our brain processes things. So it's not about stopping it altogether. It's about recognizing very quickly when you're doing it and having self-compassion and choosing another narrative. And I love the way your book gives solutions. Mm-hmm. So how do you create another, a new narrative for yourself so that you're not telling these sabotaging stories? Right. Well, and I also want to just as a caveat, side note, very much are cases of, you know, a mental illness, like I have diagnosed anxiety disorder or depression where your nervous system just cannot do that. So I just want to say if the tools aren't working, probably is something going on with your nervous system. And that is better helped by a trained trauma therapist or medication or things like that. So I just, I always want to say that because I don't want people to think like there's something wrong with me because I can't do it. It's really that part of recognizing that you're doing it. And that can honestly be sometimes the hardest part is noticing it very quickly when you are making up a disempowering story, negative self-talk, as we call it. So if you find yourself stuck in making a decision, in completing your goals, in having a hard conversation, there's probably some disempowering narratives going on. So I would ask yourself some big questions like, what is the story I make up about this? Are there, what are just the facts with this whole thing? And then write them out and then maybe write down like, what am I making up might happen and practice that over and over again. So you can recognize when you are making stuff up. And then from there, you can choose how you want to get after it. I don't love positive affirmations. I think for the majority of people, they don't really work on their own. And then people are left feeling high and dry and dissatisfied. So I say neutral things like, oh, this is really challenging. Or I am I'm having a difficult time with this particular keynote. Or it doesn't have to have a positive or negative charge is what I'm trying to say, especially when you're just starting to work on it. Yeah. Well, also being judge and jury, we're always going to lose. So you can't do that. That's for sure. But also taking that pause to even notice, oh, I am having negative self-talk. I was taught God is in the pause. So taking that pause, the breath, that to me is the hardest part. Yeah. (laughs) To take that, to slow down and to take that pause is so important. And I try to give equal weight, though, to if I've given negative energy to something, to try to think of something positive. No matter how lame, to think of something good. Even when I put lotion on my leg, oh, what a beautiful leg I have. I I don't have to believe it. I will start saying that. Or I'll put, you know, I'm in the desert right now, so everything's dry. That's why I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of that. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. I have a beautiful arm. Because I heard this woman, she was so funny. She's like, I don't even know whose arm this is. She was, she's much older. She's like, my brain is sharp and everything is still functioning. But I look at this arm, I'm like, whose arm is this? And I thought, I just laughed. She's like, I had to be helped across the street because I don't want to fall down. 
down. It's dark. And I don't want to fall down and hurt myself because I'm frailer. And she's like, who am I? Mm-hmm. And, and she's just not used to it because she doesn't feel like she's that way. But her body's yeah. become that way. But she's also so like, she's got nothing wrong with her. She still runs and still does these things. But she's also 80. So, yeah. but it was just so interesting listening to somebody 80, which I used to interview for this podcast, 80 year olds. Like, what's the meaning of life? What have you experienced? What have you gleaned and learned? Why are we here? <laughs> and I learned that it's about talking to each other without our phones, you know, that we need community and we need connection. Yes. How do you feel about like acting as if I'm really great and things like that? Because I've interviewed different people who think, oh, I don't believe in that. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. You know, you're right. The jury is still out on that. I think it depends on the person. And I also think it depends on the circumstance. So for some people, absolutely not. It makes them feel so awkward and so ill at ease. They just, they can't, they learn differently. I wonder, I'm not sure, but I wonder if it's how we are personality wise. So for instance, and I think this has something to do with just my neurodiversity. I have ADHD, impulse control disorder, (laughs) hence being an alcoholic. It makes me really great at entrepreneurship. I have a high tolerance for risk. I do not agonize over making decisions. I jump very quickly and learn retrospectively. My husband, on the other hand, is the opposite. Low tolerance for risk. He wants to learn prospectively, which makes him a terrible entrepreneur (laughs) because he stalls and stalls and stalls. So I think for someone like me that has that kind of brain, fake it till you make it can work because I am, I don't really think before I act. So I can act as if, and I don't get nervous until I'm, you know, all the way in there. For someone like my husband, who's wired that way, that can cause so much nervousness and angst that it might not work. So again, my bottom line is it really depends on your personality. So interesting. I love listening to you. Are you a good listener, do you think? I had to learn that as a skill because, again, I think part of my wiring is that it just, my brain is all over the place. And actually, it was my coach training that taught me how to listen and not think about what I was going to say next when I'm listening to someone and learning how to read nonverbal cues. And it was fascinating and takes a lot of practice to listen. And I still have to be careful with certain people, especially people I'm closest to. Like I can, it seems like I can listen easier to a client than I can like my husband. (laughs) That's always true on most things. What tools would you give on resilience and also Mm -hmm. like for confidence? Yeah, I love talking about resilience. I mean, it's one of those things that I think at all times we can use a little more of. Number one, I talk about values. It's sometimes it's one of those things that can feel a little bit unsexy and like, uh, we did this in a corporate meeting and that type of thing. But I always go back to values. And it's important to when, for lack of a better term, when shit hits the fan, we need a map. We need some kind of compass or North Star that will steer us in the direction in the dark. And so that's how I talk about it. You know, what are the values that light your way in the dark? You might have a value around creativity and adventure, but when shit hits the fan, what are the values that you're going to lean on? Is it courage? Is it integrity? Is it honesty, authenticity, connection? Like what are the things that will help you light your way in the dark that are more or less like your flashlight? That's what I point people to like when I keynote on resilience, as well as a perspective shift, which is very much in line with what we just talked about with like the superior stories is a yeah, sometimes things suck. And sometimes we can look at them as invitations to truly show up in our life. Sometimes things suck. And sometimes we can also look at them as life lessons and as a gift. Obviously, it's not always the time for that. (laughs) 
if you're going through something egregious, not the time for a spiritual experience, but eventually most of us will get there. Yeah. A lot of people are talking about time management and things like that right now. How do you manage your time? You're married, you have your business, you have your two kids. Mm-hmm. Someone with ADHD, I am glued to my Google Calendar. I also have a team that helps me because I mess up all the time. You would think, I mean, every time, no, not every time. I would say about 50% of the time when I say to myself, I can book this one thing with either a podcast interview or a client, I drop the ball. I will find the, it happened just the other week. I had a client call me and I'm like, we're not meeting. And she's like, oh, I thought I had us down. And then an hour later, I found the post-it that I had written down the appointment and not put it in my calendar. And it was like underneath another folder. So I have to have, I'm lucky enough in my job that I have someone that I can pay to help me. But I also have been prioritizing rest. I'm really challenging the notion that I have to work eight hours in a day. I was talking to a friend of mine and was telling him how tired I've been getting at three o'clock. I'm like, is it my hormones? Is it what I'm eating? Is it my blood sugar? And he's like, maybe it's just the end of the work day. (laughs) Oh my God, a revelation. So those two things, being very, very good about my electronic calendar and giving myself a lot of grace. Yeah. Grace is the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure is. yeah, absolutely. Now, what would you tell somebody who has this dream and this thing they've been wanting to do, but they're afraid to jump? And that goes back to confidence. They just, they have just this idea, you know, it, yeah. it's something they want to do and they're just not going after it. And they're not going after it. There's so many avenues we could go down based on this conversation. We can talk about self-sabotage. We can talk about, is there some kind of grief that you're experienced that's unprocessed? We can talk about any blocks that they're having because of, I don't know, their family of origin issues. And there comes a time, I believe, where that doesn't matter anymore. It's still gonna be there whether you do the thing or you don't. And you have to just do it. And it's so easy for me to say that, right? What I think, can help a lot is some form of accountability, whether you have a friend hold you accountable. Some people do really well, respond really well to something that's punitive. You know, like I'm going to start this podcast, Lauren, and if I don't do it by December 1st, mark my words, and you have to hold me to it, I'm going to donate $100 to the political thing that I don't agree with. Like something like that. That works for some people. Some people hate it. Some people love competitions. Some people hate it. You have to find what motivates you within accountability and do that. And you just, you have to just rip the bandaid off. You know what? That reminds me. My husband came home and he told me he had a bet with this other guy about whoever loses the most weight has to buy, like whoever wins has to buy the other person's wife this extravagant piece of jewelry. Yeah. I was like, you better win. Like, wait, what? And then someone else said, why aren't you donating it to charity? Why are you giving it to, like, anyway, it was the most absurd thing I'd ever heard. But I was like, okay, like I became, and I was like, I had to step back. And then I asked him a month later, because I stepped back. I wanted nothing to do with this. Yeah, It ended up like the bet was off. But I was just like, he said his dad had done something like that years and years ago. It's like, I had never heard of such a thing. But the opposite political party, I would not have stepped back. It's like, I am just too... You know, that would have incensed me. I had a friend who did that about flossing her teeth. She told herself that, and this was back in 2016, like she told herself that if she missed a day of flossing, that she would donate to the candidate that she did not want to win. She did not miss a day and her gums were healthy. 
That is so funny. Yeah, that would definitely do it. Do you have a message of hope you want to give? I think, you know, you and I were chatting before we started recording about gratitude and it can feel like one of those sort of trite, cliche sounding things that people always hear in the circles of personal development. And I always think like cliches are a cliche because they're true. And in terms of gratitude, I invite people to find the method of gratitude that works for them. Some people like to just write things down in the morning or at night. I find it more helpful for me to express gratitude in the moment when I'm thinking of it. So in this moment, I am thanking you, Lauren, for inviting me on your show. I'm so glad that I got to meet you in person. When was that last month? And that we got to chat. And I'm just so grateful that I got to go to that conference and meet other women and non-binary folks. And I'm just glad to be on this call with you. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I exchange gratitude lists with my friends every day. And we've been doing it for over a decade. Wow. And we all feel so close and so connected no matter where we are. And it's an amazing experience. And gratitude raises a frequency, the vibrational frequency. You can believe that or not. I don't really care. And I, it's made me always conscious of gratitude. I have been grateful for years and years. It's really synonymous with me. I mean, if nothing else, when I'm meditating, if I'm doing some meditation and my head's always going or whatever, I'll just come out, breathe in gratitude, breathe out fear, breathe in gratitude and breathe out fear and keep it that simple. But I'm grateful we got to do this. It's always fun. I, I mean, I was looking forward to seeing you again, even virtually. Yeah. And that is always a message of hope because it makes me smile. Gratitude makes me smile. It makes me happy. And there's always something to be grateful for if we're alive, we're breathing. And that means there's hope. So I love that as a message of hope that yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish I had asked you and I didn't ask you and you would really like to mention now? Sure. So my book is out, Make Some Noise. And there's well, two things. There's a free workbook if anyone oh, buys saw that. and wants yeah. the workbook. The workbook looks gorgeous. It's really great. It's like yeah. 65 pages too, because I ask over 250 questions in the book. And we'll have all the links on the website too. Oh, this was so fun. Thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. Thank you for having me. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Andrea's messages of gratitude. I'm so grateful for all of you. Resilience and authenticity, staying true to yourself. Such great messages to take into your week ahead. Be sure to tune in next week when there's a special episode on acceptance, resilience, and staying in the game no matter what. How we just keep going no matter what's happening. You just never know what miracle is going to happen for you just around the corner. It can come from just showing up every day no matter what's happening. It can happen at any time. It's such a great episode how everything could change in an instant. It reminds me, I have a friend. Her whole life changed so fast. Within a year, she met her soulmate, bought a house, got married, and was pregnant. That was all within a year. That was a few years ago. They're still together. She's got a couple kids now. And it's just from showing up every day and not giving up. That's what that episode reminds me of. Anyway, it's all about resilience and staying in the game no matter what, not listening to our heads. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. If you just go to 52weeksofhope.com, there's a button on the website. Click the link to subscribe and review. It's really appreciated if you could please review and subscribe to the podcast. All the podcasts are also on there. The show notes, everything that Andrea talked about, her book, her journal, all of it. 
the workbook. It's all, you have access to everything from the website at 52weeksofhope.com. If there's anything that you would like us to address, any pain points or anything like that, any particular teachings, just let me know. I'm working on a special series right now for burnt out type A overworked moms. It's amazing. I have the most amazing guests for it. I'm super excited for you guys. So that's what I'm working on right now. You can just, if you go to the website, that's how you, you can reach me or DM me however you want. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.